You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Samantha Lai, research assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation and producer of the Tech Tank podcast. I am filling in as the guest host for this episode, and I'm also a co-author of a forthcoming white paper on a new telehealth 2.0 roadmap with CTI. Joining me today are co-hosts Nicole Turner-Lee and Brookings non-resident fellow, Niam Yuragi, who is also an assistant professor of business technology at the University of Miami Herbert Business School. Before we get started, let's level set the conversation, especially since Niam was a guest on this topic some months ago. The COVID pandemic has facilitated the unprecedented growth of telehealth, as doctors' offices had to adapt to social distancing measures and move appointments online out of necessity. And even as widespread vaccinations have made in-person appointments a safer option once again, many people continue to use telehealth services. This begs questions around the future of telehealth going forward. With the recent passage of Biden's infrastructure bill, also known as the $1 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, how can increased spending on national infrastructure such as broadband help expand equitable access to healthcare? And when we think about the expiration of federal waivers designed to increase remote healthcare access and use, what will both doctors and patients do when these options are no longer available? Niam, Nicole, and I will be releasing a paper that speaks to these and other topics, with a major theme focused on how we can glean the best of technology to address the glaring disparities that exist in our nation's healthcare system. On this episode, we are going to discuss these important questions and also talk about that forthcoming telehealth paper that we wrote together. Nicole, Niam, thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Samantha. This is great. It goes without saying that telehealth use has increased massively over the pandemic, with health centers capable of providing telemedicine increasing from 43% pre-pandemic to 95%, and insurance claims going from 529,000 in February 2020 to 12 million in April 2020. And these numbers continue to stay up, even as widespread vaccination has allowed people to slowly edge their way back to some semblance of normal. Nicole, can you tell us more about how telehealth legislation looks like pre-pandemic? Which populations use telehealth the most and for what services? I think that's such a great question, right? Because we're here now on the edge of potentially what could be seen as the almost end of the pandemic, as some researchers have actually suggested this is like pandemic into endemic. And I think telehealth really was one of the major drivers for why we were able to keep people connected to healthcare. When you think about telehealth prior to the pandemic, there were an assortment of issues that we dealt with. And I've been in this space longer than I can count in terms of my first remote demonstration in Anchorage, Alaska, watching dermatological services being performed in one of the remote areas. And we were able to watch that at that time, believe it or not, via Skype, Neam. It was Skype that they were actually using. And you think about the fact that this pandemic sort of necessitated people being socially distant. Now we're actually seeing these increased numbers of telehealth use. And you have to say to yourself, what was it before the pandemic that obviously did not incentivize patients or providers to actually utilize it? 
I think one of the things to be said in this debate over the use of telehealth is obviously there's been a lot of legislative and regulatory roadblocks from licensure to intrastate and interstate use to the ability to be paid or reimbursed for eligible services. All of those have been the block, I call them the cones that have stood in the way of us fully exercising telehealth. And then in comes the pandemic and what we actually begin to see based on the fact that we could not go into a doctor's office is this increased willingness by both patients and providers to take this on. And we also saw, and this is most important, this is something we actually talk about in the paper, this regulatory relaxation, where in the first time in history, probably in healthcare, and Neem can correct me, where we've actually saw an expansion of the reimbursable codes under telehealth that doctors could actually be paid for. I think that's a large driver, Samantha, between like who was using it before and who's using it after. It's a really interesting before after story. And a recent report by McKinsey is basically saying $250 billion has been really shifted from this onerous healthcare system that we actually have in the United States due to virtual visits. With that being said, who was using it? Everybody, (laughs) you know, I can speak anecdotally. My mother, who is a hypochondriac in many respects, who has a a compromised immune system, was using telehealth once she learned how to turn her phone the right way so she could actually see her doctor. People with children or other vulnerable populations, including people of color who have traditionally been impacted by health disparities, were using telehealth. I think what we saw in this country is we saw a peak use probably during the peak of the pandemic. And to date, we've seen it somewhat leveling off, but we still see it like a hundredfold increase in the number of telehealth visits that we saw prior to this occurrence happening. And Nicole, that's such an interesting point because it's so weird now to think back about how telehealth was just not really a thing before the pandemic and the many barriers that made it something difficult for a lot of people who would have benefited from it. Thinking back to your example about how people use telehealth in Anchorage, Alaska using Skype, my first response was, wait, were they allowed to do that? Because I know before the pandemic, in order to provide telehealth services, you have to use HIPAA compliant software, which was a huge deterrent for a lot of providers to provide telehealth services. But obviously, A lot of this has changed because of the expansion of telehealth over the pandemic out of necessity. So, Niam, would you mind also telling us more about how things change with the onset of the pandemic or what measures that local governments took to expand the use of telehealth because of this national emergency, global emergency? Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to any technology innovation in the healthcare market, I can provide you with a framework to analyze it. I think There are five entities in this market. The very first one is the patient. Then you have the provider, the payer who pays for all these services, the government who regulates this, and actually the developer who goes and builds the innovation. So the way that the pandemic changed everything was very interesting because, especially when you compare this telehealth innovation with the prior technologies in the healthcare, such as, for example, patient portals or electronic health record systems, there was a huge demand from the side of the patients. Patients did not want to get out of their homes, especially if they're vulnerable. So they really wanted to communicate with their doctors online. On the other hand, providers were also really eager to use the telehealth services for one reason. And and one reason for that is that they had no other choice. If telehealth was not there, 
many of these smaller clinics, especially, would have gone bankrupt. The other part is the payer, which in most cases in the United States also means the government because it is the largest payers and including the federal government through CMS allowed for full reimbursement of telehealth visits, meaning that now a physician who sees a patient's over a video call would be reimbursed the same amount that she would have been reimbursed had the visit been in person. So that also helped with the adoption of the technology. And also the other thing that the government did from its regulatory standpoint was that they approved all of these emergency cases where, for example, physicians no longer needed to only use HIPAA-approved communication technology in order to do telehealth. You could do it over WhatsApp or FaceTime or, and even Skype. So it no longer needed to be a specific communication channel that complies with HIPAA. And finally, because of all these forces of innovation, because for a year or so, it became the Wild West. You had to innovate and there was pretty much no regulation to stop you from innovation. And there was no shortage of money, just like the Operation Warp Speed, that there were no regulation to stop you from innovating in vaccines, and there was no shortage of money. So, right, is if you were a vaccine developer, you could go innovate without any risk because the government was pre-buying all your products regardless of their efficacy. Now, in the context of telehealth, we had this very short era that developers could truly innovate and have immediate reward. And that, I think, has led to not only the creation of the technology, the better technology to be used, more user-friendly, more secure, but also coming up with other parts that would connect to this technology in order to enhance its usability. Take, for example, your iPhone, right? The iPhone itself has a lot of a lot of utility. However, if you have the App Store and you have a million different apps that you can add on to your iPhone, its use would be enhanced to a greater degree. And, and so the same thing, I think, happened with the telehealth. It no longer was just a simple video conferencing. You could now come in with other technologies and innovations and couple it with the telehealth so that experience and the utility that you would get out of your telehealth visit would be enhanced. An example of that could be interoperability and connection of your telehealth visit with the through the EHRs, through the health information exchanges, so that the physician who is communicating with you via telehealth is now able to also see your complete medical history and give you a better medical recommendation because now they have access to your comprehensive medical history. Yeah, and it's really great to see all these innovations happen. But thinking about how things have been over the pandemic, what can we expect going forward? Looking at the mid to the end of 2021, many emergency orders authorizing the use of telehealth are starting to expire. So can would someone mind kind of laying out the landscape of how different states have been handling it? Does it seem different state government, local governments are cracking down on the use of telehealth or are others trying to expand programs that worked over the pandemic? If I can jump in here and then Nian, please, because this is a space that I know you spend a lot more time than I do in. This is an interesting time, right? Because 
There has been a movement towards the use of telehealth or remote services in the medical area. And I think what Niam is actually pointing out, there's been also a historic pushback from the healthcare industry because they have traditionally defined the technology use. And what we're seeing in telehealth, particularly over the pandemic, is that the technology is driving improved access to healthcare, which I think is a really important nuance that we make in the paper as well when it comes to thinking about how we continue this past the pandemic. Now, there are some people that argue, Samantha, to your point, that we need to be very careful that the artificial volume that was pretty much happening during the pandemic is not necessarily going to be applicable when we return back to quote unquote normalcy in terms of healthcare. And I would suggest that there might be some truth to that, but there also may be truth to the fact that it may ultimately find itself there if we don't do anything about it. And let me tell you why. So Neem talked about CMS or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who really permitted at the federal level telehealth through waivers and exceptions. And those waivers and exceptions are set to expire at the end of the year. And that's very important for people to understand that. What CMS basically did was to allow for reimbursement of certain codes that in the past were not necessarily eligible costs for providers. So that's important because to a certain extent, the federal government really gave the push to incentivize this marketplace. But then states did something that I think was also particularly interesting. States who we all know, and we actually wrote about this in a previous paper at CTI on telehealth maybe two years ago, they really play a big role in managing what healthcare looks like in their individual jurisdictions. And what we have seen with the states is they followed the lead of CMS by allowing these emergency orders to make exceptions. They also relaxed, you know, some of the concerns around parity and decided to pay equally an in-person or telehealth visit. Some states even suggested that they would permit audio-only visits during the pandemic. And what we're seeing now, Samantha, to your question, some of these states are backtracking on this in the middle of the pandemic. And so my worry is, and Neem, I don't know about you, is that in this telehealth 2.0 roadmap, it is very important that we think about how government plays a role in incentivizing this community to be able to offer this as an alternative. Clearly, there are going to be some things you just cannot do virtually. You cannot have your blood at this point drawn over a device. <laughs> you have to go into the office. But what we also have seen in this space is that telehealth is not just about virtual emergency care, right? It's about primary care. It's about secondary care. It's about a tertiary intervention. It's about maintenance. It's about diagnosis. It's a check-in, a wellness check-in. And so I think it's important for us as we go forward with these emergency orders pending on the cliff. I just read an article that said the cliff of telehealth is still pending, that we need to sit back and see the extent to which that this pandemic response really have set a pathway for best practices that we should be evaluating in telehealth, the continuance of telehealth services. So Neam, I, I don't know about you, I get nervous, right? Because I just know that I've enjoyed it. And I know that others who are you know, afraid to go into a hospital or doctor's office are still benefiting from it. But I do fear that the government, as well as state and local governments and federal government are going to get ahead of themselves and sort of make the determination for the market. 
Yeah, I agree with you, especially on the part that everybody enjoys it. As I said at the beginning, one of the reasons for the success of telehealth was that everybody enjoyed it. Physicians really enjoyed using it. Patients really enjoyed using it. And that is why it caught on like wildfire. Now, whether or not the governments are going to roll it back, I don't think that would happen, at least completely. And that is for two reasons. The very first reason is, It's a good thing. Telehealth is a good service, generally speaking. So I do not see any rational reason for the government to say that, you know what, I'm going to take it back. I'm going to take something good that everybody likes away from my citizens, especially if those citizens are patients and physicians and medical community, both with very strong lobbies, right? Now, what is more likely to happen, I think, is something between the two extremes, meaning that I do not believe that the government will completely take it away and go back to the pre-pandemic era of telehealth. Neither it would allow it to continue as it is right now. What I am leaning towards is that it is going to tamper some of these services because they are going to do some analysis and see for which kind of medical services it makes more sense to provide telehealth alternatives. For some types of services, telehealth is much more logical than other services. So they can do it from a medical standpoint to do analysis, to do cost-benefit analysis, and see actually look at the outcomes and compare the people who received care via telehealth with the ones who received care in person and see how they turn out in terms of, say, their mortality, their cost for care and stuff like that. So they're one group of telehealth services that are going to be restricted, I think, primarily because of medical reasons, saying that, look, it doesn't make any sense. The patients who receive telehealth don't end up having better outcomes than the ones that uh, receive in person, or maybe they, they even tend to get worse outcomes and worse costs. And then the other part that the government would be more restrictive would be on the kind of services that would allow fraud. Because one thing that usually is not really talked about is the extent of fraud in the healthcare system. That is very unfortunate, but very huge. And I think while telehealth services make it really convenient for patients to seek the services that they need and for physicians to provide the services that they need, so it is a really good facilitators for the honest players in this game, it also facilitates fraud. Like back then, if you wanted to run a fraudulent operation and bill Medicare, for example, you know, one thing that was very common down here in Florida was that you would have a boss, you go round up all these senior citizens from their nursing homes and take them to a lunch and send them back and then bill all their Medicare for an in-person visit to a physician. And then you'll you also build them for a bunch of medical devices, you know, wheelchairs and canes and all those stuff. And when the Medicare auditors come and say, yeah, you know, I remember there was this bus coming from this clinic and took us, but did you really see a doctor or not? That is something that many of these people would not even be able to remember, right? So you had to put in an effort to run that, that, that criminal operation. Whereas now imagine that you can say, oh, they did a telehealth visit. It makes it way easier 
to go and bill Medicare for all of these visits that you supposedly do via telehealth. And you don't even need to go around these people to be physically present at a place. And I think that we would hear some blockbuster stories, news headlines of Medicare in collaboration with FBI busting some of these fraudulent activities, big ones. And then as a result of that, there would be some restriction in terms of audits and in terms of putting safeguards in place in order to make sure that it's not as easy to submit fraudulent claims to Medicare. And that would itself be some kind of a restriction on telehealth services. So Sam, if I could respond to Neam, I think Neam is completely right. There's going to be a moment that we actually see this willingness, this conformity, this desire, this enjoyability that's associated with telehealth. But I also think, Neam, you bring up a good point that I wanted to push a little bit, that there might be other areas that will be harder to justify and incentivize doctors to take this on, right? After the pandemic. I was looking recently at some new legislation that just came out last month that's pretty much bipartisan, that... It's interesting because it doesn't really talk about like, you know, normally the Republicans may talk about waste, fraud and abuse. But this bill that is a bipartisan bill, the Expanded Telehealth Access Act, is really suggesting that we need to keep going, keep pressing this forward. So I do think going forward, it's just going to be really important that we don't get misdirected and lose our attention on having a data-driven approach, but at the same time, and I don't know, Neam, you can disagree with me, right, or Samantha, maintaining the urgency. Because that's what scares me right now, right? In the next step, three to four weeks, we may see not necessarily a literal switch turn off telehealth, but we may see it harder to incentivize doctors to use it once they start to return back into those swing of things. It's like people right now walking around in the park and going to concerts, right? After a while, you sort of flip those things off and you become much more complacent to how we used to do it. Yeah, and that would be such a pity because as we also talk about in our paper, telehealth is not just convenient, but it also is able to make healthcare and a more equitable affair. So Nicole, in our paper, we talk about care equity, health equity, digital equity. Would you mind going more into that and telling us more about what these terms mean and why they're important? I think as we all have been looking at this issue It is one of those things where there has to be a value proposition for telehealth. And Niamh, you remember we talked about this many months ago with Ross Freeberg from Doctors on Demand. What is value-based care? What is the proposition for improving outcomes like you've suggested? But I do think when we think about telehealth, we've traditionally thought about it as somewhat binary. And I think it's important for us to start breaking that up a little bit. Obviously, care equity comes with everything we've spoken about so far. How do you improve upon outcomes? How do you ensure that people have options when accessing their doctors? Going as far as accepting different modalities when it comes to telehealth care use. Are people able to be synchronous or asynchronous? Can they do an audio call versus a video call? Having flexibility on that really matters because it does improve the way in which people maintain, to Neam's point, that enjoyability, right, of using telehealth. I think the other thing is health equity. What we did see, and some have argued that this is not necessarily substantive in its finding, but we did see more people who have limited access to quality care 
or proximity to quality care institutions utilize telehealth. Among Black and Latinas, we saw an increase, although some would argue that it's somewhat leveled off over the last few months. But we did see folks that had an opportunity to get better care than what they currently had. I was part of a conversation with the Telehealth Equity Coalition, of which I'm a member, and what folks there are really arguing for is keeping health equity at the prime of these conversations, convincing ourselves that it's important to have options when it comes to care, but it's more important to make sure that those options reach the right people. And I think the last thing we propose in our paper, which I haven't heard a lot about, and I would consider myself to be the digital divide diva, is digital equity. We can't do any of this without access to quality broadband service or devices. And so I think it's really important, too, to connect the dots between the three. If we're going to develop an ecosystem where technology is welcome and utilized and incentivized, and it's also seen as a driver for closing some of those economic, social, personal disparities that exist when it comes to people's access to healthcare, in the same way we talk about people's access to broadband. I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. I, I completely agree with you. And the analogy that I can give is, say, access to media. Suppose that we were like 30 years back in the time and we were talking about people's rights and citizens' rights to have access to media. And back then, the only media that existed was radio and, to some extent, TV, Right. We could not even fathom the kind of media that we have access to streaming services, Internet and Twitter and social media and all these different kinds and new innovations in media that people have access to. And not only they have access to, but in many demographics, they use it way more than radio and TV. So, like, for example, one of them is like podcasts. Right. I'm. Personally, a huge consumer of podcasts, I do not remember when was the last time I turned on my TV to watch cable. That would be like the different modalities of telehealth. I think we should look at telehealth as a goal and not as an object, meaning that telehealth should be defined as a way to receive healthcare services that we used to receive in person remotely, right? Now, how that remote access to those healthcare services happen is something that we really don't know. It, should, it totally depends on the population. Traditionally, is through a video call, through a HIPAA-compliant technology, but it does not have to. It does not even have to be, as you said, synchronous. It could be asynchronous. It could be, it does not necessarily have to involve a human physician at every single instance. It can be AI. Sometimes you may be chatting with a chatbot, with a robot to help you with your very simple questions that you may have rather than connecting with a physicians or a nurse practitioners to resolve an issue that is very straightforward. Just like the media that we would have access through many different channels to very different and various kinds of content, I think telehealth would be something that we would have access to different kinds of services through different channels, depending on the need that we have and the user and the provider. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And when we're talking about innovations, when we're talking about the modernization of the delivery of healthcare in EM, I know I had the amazing opportunity to work with you on a blog that is now in Brookings Tech Tank about health information exchange competitiveness and how that has changed and allowed so much more room for in- innovation over the pandemic. Would you mind talking more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the changes that we witnessed in the healthcare after the pandemic was the entrance of these non-traditional players into the healthcare market. So on one side, we have these small tech companies that are entering, and they're not necessarily small. Most of them are small, but it also in tech giants, such as Google. So like Google now has a VP of health, and there are numerous other smaller tech companies that are getting into the healthcare in order to innovate and redesign the processes through which we were receiving the healthcare services. And and other non-healthcare companies include, say, retailers, Walmart and and Publix and, and some other grocery stores that are saying, wait a moment, like everybody is disrupting this healthcare market. Why can't we be a part of it? And we actually have really good infrastructure for that. So some statistic about Walmart, for example, I thought 95% of the U.S. population lives within a three-mile radius of a Walmart center. Something like that is just huge access. And now we're talking about disparities in access to healthcare in many parts of the United States. Actually going and seeing a doctor is really difficult. We're talking about COVID and vaccination rates and the fact that some people really cannot go and get the vaccine, right? Whereas they can go and get their groceries at at Walmart, right? So when Walmart enters this game, everything's going to be changed, not only because they already have a legacy infrastructure there, but the way that they are going to really fundamentally change the interoperability scene in health information exchange is that they would naturally want to extend their services in the healthcare. And the only way to do it is through data. There is no other way. And these companies know it very well because they've been using this data for decades. Actually, I always tell this in my class, the most technology advanced uh, non-tech company in the world is actually Walmart. They, They are extremely advanced in big data and analytics and the use of technology in their operation. So is every other legacy corporation in the United States. Otherwise, they would just go bankrupt. They would not be existing right now. The, the mere fact that they are existing right now is enough evidence for me to believe that they not only have the infrastructure to analyze the data, but also they are fully aware of the importance of the data. Tell me more about how that kind of ties in with HIEs and how there can be opportunities for collaboration for them going forward when it comes to health data. Unlike the legacy healthcare organizations, they really don't need data in order to stay afloat in the United States. Because their market is very monopolistic, they are the only provider of healthcare services in the U.S. and they're not being paid by the patients. They're paid by the government and some health insurance company. So Walmart would naturally want to partner with these providers. And because they know the value of data, they're going to be willing to pay for it. So something that a hospital would be very hesitant to paying for, 
because it is very difficult to come up with a business justification for purchasing such data. Walmart or Walgreens or Publix or, or Wegmans would be more than willing to pay because they can afford it and they know the importance. So in summary, one area that health information exchanges would be expanding into would be to partner with non-healthcare customers. So they're no longer looking at hospitals and no longer looking at patients or no longer looking at insurance companies. They're looking at these wild cards. How can they approach a non-healthcare provider to sell their data to? Then they're also going to have to expand the types of the services that they have. So not only they're going to diversify the, their customer base, but they also have to diversify their services. They have to provide exchange of non-medical data. So if you're able to sell your medical data to Walmart, then you should be able to buy non-medical data from Walmart. If you're able to tell Walmart who has diabetes, who doesn't, then Walmart should be, should be able to telling you that which of these diabetic patients are buying healthier grocery items, which one of them are buying donuts, which one is buying apples. And how can you use that non-medical data in order to improve on healthcare? How can you package it? Which takes me to the third part that they can expand on, which is asynchronous services, expanding on analytics, expanding on providing insights and information rather than mere data. I know it sounds very intrusive, especially from the privacy standpoint, but it does not need to be, right? So there can be some good intentions, especially if they're well-regulated, in order to make sure that the privacy is preserved, but at the same time, patients are going to receive uh, higher utility out of these exchange platforms. I think it's really interesting how your bigger point is that the state of healthcare is inevitably going to change at large because of new actors entering the market. And at the end of the day, telehealth is just one part of that much larger change. So, Nicole, to wrap us up, you mentioned earlier on about the verticals of equity. And we all know about the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that just passed. How will the Biden-Harris administration going on with how will they be able to impact these changes with current infrastructure and social spending proposals? Yeah, first and foremost, Niam, you never seem to amaze me with your knowledge and expertise on the healthcare system overall. So thank you for being my colleague and friend, really, because I think it speaks so much. None of us on this uh, podcast and people listening would have ever thought that we would see local retail establishments as new participants in the healthcare marketplace. And it speaks a lot because that's where most of our data is now when it comes to our shots. Um, it's sitting somewhere that has that that potential. So we have to keep watch on that. And that's something we'll continue to do at CTI. I would just say to this conversation, Sam, which I find to be interesting is this is a critical moment in time, right? We have just witnessed the fact that the Biden-Harris administration was successful in their bid for an infrastructure proposal, which should actually deal with this digital equity side of the telehealth administration that has been holding us up. If that, we see it go the way that it is. We'll see more broadband deployed in areas like rural America and areas where there's less competition. We'll see support for people to have the resources to be able to afford digital access so that they can partake in the variety of activities like telehealth that are enabled across high-speed broadband networks. And most importantly, if we actually get this social structure, the social infrastructure, social spending bill put out there, we'll see more money to devices as well as digital literacy training and 
support. I think at the end of the day, what this conversation means to me and what this paper that will be coming out means to me is that we've crossed this line, that it's no longer just about the healthcare insurance plans and the providers, but it's also about the patients and the environments in which they live something that's always been typical of this discussion. But more importantly, it's about this management and modernization of the entire ecosystem. What that looks like going forward can be really exciting. And we haven't even touched, right, on this podcast about digital health. We've just been talking about telehealth. Imagine if we put that in and how the range of actors actually expand when we start talking about cardiometers and other you know, devices that are able to manage our pulse, et cetera. So I do think that what the Biden administration is setting up, and one thing to point out to listeners, the Build Back Better part of it in terms of the social spending plan and the infrastructure proposal with the American Jobs Act is not where we actually see a lot of money going into telehealth. Biden and Harris early on actually gave about $19 million, I believe it was, towards telehealth to Health and Human Services and other government agencies to accelerate rural broadband for the purposes of telehealth. So I think we're going to, again, see more of these all stops taken But most importantly, we're going to have this conversation where, and I I just reflect on when I was in Anchorage watching that young girl get dermatological services almost three decades ago or two, two and a half decades ago. I'm just happy we're having the conversation going forward. The key thing is, what does that roadmap look like for the service? But more importantly, I think what uh, we talked about and what Niamh really laid out in this last response, what does that look like for the environment in which healthcare is actually administered? So- a lot to to rest if we get this bill right, that we won't have this barrier of broadband be as strict and as stringent and, you know, keeping people offline so that they cannot partake in digital activity. It's part of my book. My book is coming out next year on this. But I also think it's important for us to see that we actually have made some progress in revolutionizing our healthcare system. Yes, if there's one key takeaway for our listeners today, it is that flexibility with telehealth and continuing telehealth in all its modalities is incredibly important for making sure that the future of healthcare is accessible and equitable for all. And as we've talked about today, there are so many considerations to take into account in order for us to chart the path towards a more responsible and inclusive future for telehealth going forward. Nicole and Neum, thank you for teaching me so much about this incredibly important and topical issue and for t- taking the time today to share your expertise on this. Well, Sam, I mean, you're you're part of this triage here. <laughs> if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be able to have um, this conversation. You've been such a useful resource and co-author, so we appreciate you too. And you are a great guest host. Thanks for doing this. I got to actually be on this side of the microphone today. Yeah, and I want to second that. You know, it's been amazing working with you, with both of you, actually. Oh, thank you so much. So this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bytes. I am Samantha Lai, Research Assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation and co-producer of Tech Tank. Thank you for listening, and be sure to follow the Tank newsletter to be alerted of the release of our forthcoming telehealth paper that we talked about in today's episode. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.